So you may have noticed that the title of my sermon is Killing the Old Man. You remember last week was Mother's Day. This is not my Father's Day sermon. I just want you to know that. It's about something very different. Uh, actually, it's about a subject. It's a word that we don't use much anymore. I'm going to teach some of you a new word. And it's the word mortification. Mortification. It, it means, the definition is, uh, the act of putting something to death right? So it's a spiritual term, although we use certain terms that are related to it, like a, a funeral director is sometimes called a mortician, uh, or someone who's, uh, who wants to be a little uh, high and mighty, I suppose. If they feel embarrassed, they say, oh, I was just mortified. In other words, I, I just wanted to drop dead right there that moment. I was so embarrassed. Uh, the term mortification in a spiritual sense, we get from the apostle Paul. Let me show you where. So Romans eight thirteen. Paul writes and says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That term put to death in the King James Version was translated mortify. And so theologians took that term and created the term mortification. The idea that uh, sin is like cancer. And I don't know, some of you have experienced cancer yourselves. If not, you surely know someone who has. When you get diagnosed with cancer, nobody ever says to their oncologist, you know, I, I just want you to take a moderate approach. I'm comfortable with a moderate amount of cancer in my body. No, we all say, kill it, kill it now. And that's what God is saying through, through Paul in Romans eight thirteen. If you allow sin to just take root in your heart and, and, and go unaddressed, it will kill you. So you need to kill it. Uh, Colossians 3.5 says it this way. It says, therefore put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Again, put it to death. Put to death your sin. That is a lifelong process. That's not something you do. Some of you are like, hey, I got saved when I was such and such years old. I got baptized. I know that I was saved. I know that it was real. You're telling me there's more to do? Yes. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying that was just the beginning of the process of you becoming like Jesus. And there, so for the rest of your life, you're gonna have to be killing sin. And the old Puritan preacher, John Owen, said it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that's even true of believers in Jesus who know they're saved. You know that if you don't kill the sin in your heart and your life, it can come back and do awful things to you. Can't take your salvation away, but it can wreck your relationships. It can hurt people you love. In fact, I guarantee you this. I guarantee you, not because I know you well, because, not because I'm the Holy Spirit, because I'm not, but in a room this size, there are probably many, many people who are struggling with some sin that your family, your friends, those closest to you have been praying you would deal with. There are others of you that maybe you live in such a compromised way when you're around people who aren't Christians. You've been driving them away from salvation for years, and now's the day where all that can change. So in this entire series in 1 Peter, I think this is the passage that could change the most lives. Since I believe a lot of the folks who come to our church are already believers, this is the passage that could change your life the most. So be ready, be aware. I want some of you to walk out of here with specific steps you're gonna take to put to death the sin in your life. 1 Peter 4, one through six says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. 
but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So here's what I want you to do as we begin. I want you to think about a specific sin that you struggle with. Some of us have bad habits that we continually do over and over again, even though we know it's wrong. Some of us have addictions. Some of us have uh, just a besetting sin. You know it's the kind of thing that you have to apologize for often, or maybe you don't apologize for it. You make excuses for it, but it's something you continue to do that you know is wrong. Now, in my ideal world, every member of this church would have a list of sins that you pray to the Lord about until that list gets shorter and shorter. But if not, I want you right now to think of one specific one. If there's one thing spiritually about yourself you could change, what would it be? Now, what is it? I don't want you to say it out loud, but do you have it in your head? All right, so now my next question is, what would you have to do to kill that sin? What specific steps would you take? If somebody somebody put a gun to the head of, of your family and said, if you don't quit doing this sin in the next 30 days, they're dead, what would you do? Besides call the cops, obviously. Now, we all know, right? We're all smart enough. The, the person who gossips could say, I just, I'm just, I just need to stop hanging around with the people who share those juicy tidbits of information. I just need to learn to control myself. I, I need to control uh, my speech and only say what is appropriate. The, the woman who holds grudges and can't forgive knows that if she started praying for the people she doesn't like, then she would change in her heart toward them. The, the guy who can't stop looking at porn knows that if he set up uh, filters on his computer, on his on his iPhone, then that would, be a, that would be a step in the right direction. If he had friends who held him accountable, if he shared with them everything in his heart and they monitored and prayed for him, that would make a difference. The woman who drinks too much knows that if she entered rehab or if she started a 12-step program, then that would break the addiction. The guy with a bad temper knows that he could go to counseling. Uh, he could start avoiding the things, the places, the people that trigger his temper, or he could just start exercising some self-control. We all know the things we need to do. And if you don't know how to kill sin, come talk to a, a trusted Christian friend, your life group leader, somebody on our staff. But my question for you is, why haven't you done it yet? We all know how to kill sin, but why haven't we started? We all have our excuses. Oh, everybody does this. I'm not the worst of this. I mean, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. I could quit anytime I want. I mean, they had it coming. But none of our excuses wash. This morning, I want to show you from the passage we just read, from the words of the Apostle Peter, three realities which, if we embrace them, if we embrace them, they will motivate us to do whatever it takes to kill sin, to mortify our flesh. So the first reality is the reality about the cross. In verse one, Peter says, and I remind you, he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What is he talking about? On the cross, Jesus died for our sins. We know that. If you've grown up in church, if you've been in church any time at all, you know that. One of the first scriptures I learned to memorize as a little boy was 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us, to, to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I never stopped to ask, what does it say God is faithful and just? Well, think about it this way. If today at lunch, you're at whatever restaurant you might go to, you go up to the counter and you wanna pay for your lunch and they say, no, 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 somebody already paid. That's that cashier being just. 
If she was an unjust cashier, she would say, oh sure, give me the 1560, right? She would, she would take two payments for the same meal, but a just cashier wouldn't do that. A just God does not take two payments for the same sin. Jesus has paid for your sin, therefore he will not punish you. you he will not make you pay. And that is such good news. And that's what we celebrate later today when we take the Lord's Supper. But I want you to know, that's not all that Jesus accomplished on the cross. He didn't just die for our forgiveness. He died to set us free. As we sang earlier this morning, by your stripes I'm healed. By your death I live. The power of sin is overcome. It is finished. It is done. In the next song we sang, we sang, I'm free. I'm free. Forever we're free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. Did you think about the words you were singing there? Free from what? We were in bondage to sin and now we're not. Why? Because Christ has nailed our sin to the cross. Because we have died alongside him. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ and therefore I no longer live. Now Christ lives in me. If you're a wanted man or a wanted woman and they think you've died, you're not wanted anymore. They burn your file, they shred it, you're, you're done. And that's the case with sin. We are no longer under bondage. That's why when we baptize people in that baptistry up there, as we dip them in the water, you know what we say, right? You've heard us say it time and time again. Buried with Christ in, in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. You might think, oh, well, they must teach them that in the seminary. No, that's, that's the words of Romans 6. A, a person being baptized is saying, I'm no longer the person I was. Sin has no power over me anymore. I have been crucified with Christ. Now I'm raised to live a brand new life. And you might say, but then why do I still sin? If I'm new, why do I still make the same mistakes? Well, think about it. When Jesus was crucified, they put the nails in his hands and feet at, at around nine in the morning. Did he die at nine in the morning? No. He was on that cross for six hours. It takes a long time to die on a cross. And Jesus wanted to die. He was a willing victim so he could die for our sins. Your sin nature, on the other hand, does not want to die. It wants to continue to reign over you. It is scratching and clawing for more breathing room in your life. It wants to dominate you. you it's, it's like the bad guy in a bad horror movie, right? You've seen these. You put an ax in his forehead, he falls down. 30 seconds later, he's back up, rrr, coming after you. That's, that's your sin nature. It never stops. You have to keep killing it. You have to keep fighting against it. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Remember Peter in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested, he pulls out a sword and cuts off a guy's ear and then realizes, oh, I just blindsided that dude. That's, that's all I got and runs away like a coward. What he needed was not a physical sword. What he needed was the courage and the wisdom and the, and the power and the love, the self-sacrificial love of someone like Jesus so that he could stand by his friend. And what Peter is saying is, don't make the mistake I made. Arm yourself, not with a physical sword, but with the, the, the character of Jesus Christ. That's available to you and me. We can come to him in prayer and say, Lord, I struggle with my temper, but I, yeah, I struggle with that too. I struggle with my temper, but I know you're patient, so make me patient like you are. I struggle with selfishness, but you love, so teach me to love. I struggle, I struggle with judgmentalism, but I know, I know that you're compassionate, so make me compassionate like you are. And he will do it. How often do you pray that way? 
And you might say, Jeff, I've tried this. I I really have, but I keep stumbling and I keep falling. So I, I guess I'm just not destined to be righteous. Don't stop. Imagine you're a little kid and every day on the way to school, you get pounced on and beaten up by the same gang of thugs. And you might say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna get some martial arts training so I can take down these bullies. Well, it's gonna take a while, isn't it? You don't just go for a couple of weeks and then walk out like Jackie Chan you know, in the 1990s and just take down everybody. You're still gonna get beaten up for a while. You have to keep on training. You know, and then, you, then you're able to beat up the, the weakest of the bullies, but you still got those others. And so you keep on training. My point to you is this is a lifelong process. You've got a whole hit list of sins that you need to take down and God has to train you for the righteousness it takes to overcome them, to mortify your flesh. So don't give up, don't quit. The reality of the cross is that if you're still living in bondage to sin, you're making a mockery of what Christ did for you at Calvary. And we don't want to do that. Secondly, there's the reality about our sin itself. Verse three, I love the way he says it. He says, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now understand, he's using the word Gentiles not in a racial sense, but in the sense of, uh, of, of religion, the sense of spirituality. He's saying the people who don't believe, you've lived like them long enough, haven't you? It's a fancy way of saying, haven't you wasted enough time living this way? Now he goes on in that verse to list some specific sins like sensuality and passions and drunkenness. And you might say, well, I'm not guilty of any of that stuff. It's not a representative list. It's it's just, it's just, He's writing to specific people and saying, I know you. I know this is the way you used to live and some of you still live this way. If he were writing, if Peter were writing this letter to Conroe in 2022, he might have a whole different list of sins. In fact, you and I could probably sit around and think about the sins he would list. But his point is, haven't you wasted enough time? Haven't you wasted enough of your life hurting your family? Haven't you wasted enough of your life being a bad friend? Haven't you wasted enough of your life driving people away from the cross because they look at you and say, well, she goes to church and yet she acts like that. He goes to church all the time and yet he acts the way he does. I guess there's really nothing to it. There's no reason for me to even look into it because I got news for you. I'm sorry, I'm sorry I like you all. Those of you who I know well, I really like and those of you I don't know well, I'm sure I will like as I get to know you better. But but this is just the painful truth. You look around this room, you see a lot of good looking people, well-dressed, look like they have it all together. That's baloney. This is a room full of sinners. And not, not minor sinners, right? Not, not little white lies and, and not like small problems. The sin in this room is so bad, Jesus had to die for it. Jesus had to die for it. The Son of God had to give his life to pay the price for it. And you and I fool ourselves about our sin and we say, it's not that bad. You know, one of, the, one of the tragedies of religion is that if you're religious long enough, you learn to spot sin in other people. See, I've been, I've been religious my whole life. I was, in, I was going to church while I was still in the womb. So I, I'm really good at this. I, I, I'm good at, at spotting your sin and I, I find it awful. I mean, if you want to make an appointment, we could talk about it, but I, I doubt it. But what I need is the ability to see my sin that way. And it's what you need as well, to see your sin with the same disgust with which you look upon the sins of others. 
Nicholas Kristof writes for the New York Times, and some years ago, he was writing a series of articles about human trafficking. And give him all the credit in the world, I don't know that Nick Kristof is a Christian, but he did a very Christian thing. He said to himself, I can't just write about this awful tragedy, these girls that are, that are kidnapped when they're little girls and they're, they're raised up, uh, they're virtual property of these terrible men who, who sell them to other cruel men who abuse them day after day to make those men rich. And he said, I, I can't just write about this awful thing. Me, a well-off American who could do something about it, I can't write about this without trying, at least trying to set some of them free. And so just on his own, he flew to Cambodia and took some of his own money and went around finding some of these girls and trying to pay off their pimps, their bosses, their quote-unquote owners. And those guys were all too eager to sell these girls because it made them money. They made more money on that sale than they usually did. The problem was many of the girls didn't want to go free. It was very, very eye-opening for him. One girl, he brought home to her little village and everybody wept and rejoiced and she wept and rejoiced and kissed all her loved ones and then a couple of days later slipped out in the middle of the night and went back to the big city, back to the, to the man who had owned her. And another girl, when he had paid her owner $200 for her freedom, said, I can't go without my cell phone and he owns it. And so he negotiated a payment for the cell phone and then said, but I can't leave without the, the jewelry that I've collected. And he said, well, I can buy that too. And at that point she locked herself in her room and cried and refused to leave. And he said, what's wrong with these girls? And what's wrong with them is the same thing that's wrong with you and me. And that is we convince ourselves this is, this is good enough. Yeah, I know. I know I make people miserable. Yeah, I know I hurt people all the time. Yeah, I know that I'm not as happy as I'd like to be. And, and I know that, that I could be a better person, but you know, this is good enough. The, the misery we are experiencing seems better than the fear of the unknown, the fear of that freedom that is to come. And I know you don't like to look at yourself that way, but all of us at some point are in that position. I know I need to do better. I know I could do better. I know Christ has given me the power to do better. I just, I just don't want to take that step. I don't know what it would be like to kill this sin and what I'd be left with if I got rid of this addiction, if I said no, if I said goodbye to this habit. Just see there's freedom on the other side. Ask the Lord to show you your sin through his eyes, to be just disgusted with it as he is. To say, enough, I've wasted enough of my life. And then the third reality, there's the reality of the cross, the reality about our sin, and then the third is the reality about unbelievers. See, we live in a world full of people who don't know Christ. And we live in a world full of people also who know Christ, but who have never really dealt with their sin, who have stalled or backslidden. And the reality you need to understand about, about the people around you is they're not going to encourage this. They're not gonna cheer you on when you grow. Oh, sure, we'll make a show of, of celebrating when, a, when a, a, an alcoholic says, oh, I've, I've, I'm three years sober. Oh, good for you, yay. But if those were your friends that you used to drink with, they're upset with you that you don't drink with them anymore. If it was the, the crowd that you used to gossip with, they can't understand. Do you think you're better than us? We, we've got some good stuff to share and we wanna know what you have to say. And, and what are you not gonna share? You're not, gonna even gonna, you're not even gonna laugh at my joke? You're not even gonna comment about what I said? 
Whatever your besetting sin is, when you start to kill it, there are going to be people who are going to be upset with you about it. As, as Peter says in verse 4, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. That's a fancy way of saying they try to bring you back down to their level. And in fact, if you're not careful, you'll start to think maybe they're right. Maybe that's where I belong. In fact, you'll start to believe something even worse. You'll start to believe maybe they're living the happier life. See, that's the bill of goods that the world sells us. It says, okay, yeah, maybe Jesus is enough to get you to heaven, but you'll be sacrificing happiness down here. You'll just have to kind of gut it out down here and live an unhappy, miserable life. And then maybe you'll get rewarded when you get to heaven, but even that doesn't sound all that fun to us. And it's all a lie. Because the very next verse says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's a day of judgment coming in which all things will be made clear. When I was growing up as a little boy, I, read, I rode bus four to my school in Yoakum, Yoakum, Texas. I was out in the country, bus four was uh, assigned that route that went out into this particular part of the countryside. I was one of the first kids they picked up in the morning. Uh, so I had to get up really early. My bus driver was a guy named Mr. Mosley. Mr. Mosley was tall, had a Fu Manchu mustache, and he ran a tight ship. Now, when I became a high school senior, he was my government economics teacher, but I didn't know that at the time. We called him, by that point, we called him Reverend Mosley because he'd get up and give these long sermons about politics and his views, and it was very entertaining. But as kids, we knew you didn't mess with Mr. Mosley. He would, he would bust you. In fact, true story, one day uh, we're going home from school. We, I mean, we basically just left the school and this little kid went up and told Mr. Mosley, as the bus is, is rolling, hey, Mr. Mosley, Larry's kicking me and, and karate chopping me back there in the back seat. And Mosley slammed on the brakes and he said, Larry, get your carcass up here. And, you know, big Larry gets smaller. I mean, every step he took, he got like an inch smaller until he was like that big when he, got, when he stood next to Mr. Mosley. And Mosley, I'm not making this up, threw him off the bus. Threw him off. This, this little kid threw him off and he was done. We never saw Larry again. I don't know what happened to him. Uh, he sure didn't ride bus four, I can guarantee you that. Uh, but what Mosley hated more than anything else in the whole wide world, more than murderers, rapists, child molesters, communists, whatever you want to name, was people who passed the bus when the lights were flashing. Y'all know that's illegal, right? And so he kept a little pad of paper and he would write down the, the driver's license of anybody who broke that particular law. And we knew as soon as he got to the bus barn, he was going to call the cops and report those people. And one day on the way to school, we were out on the highway and we were about 10 miles from Yoakum and, and this kid in this sports car, long hair, right? Uh, it just comes flying past us as the lights are flashing. And it was just a gr by the grace of God that the two little girls who were getting on the bus weren't hit. And boy, he got mad. And, and so as we're driving along, we drive a little further and we get to the edge of town and we see that a, a highway patrolman has pulled that kid over for speeding. And I am not, I promise, I'm not exaggerating this in the least. As he's driving past the kid, Mosley sticks his entire upper body out of the window of that bus and gives him a big wave. Like, yeah, good for you. Now that's an example of the fact that sometimes we get to see the bad guys punished. Sometimes people do bad things and we see the consequences of their actions fall upon them in this life. So you've got that friend whose husband ran off with a younger woman and you're so hurt for her, you're so mad at him. And then a couple of years later, you hear that, that this new woman dumped him and you're like, 
good. Or, or you hear about that guy, uh, maybe you had a really, really bad boss who did, some, who did you know, unethical things in, in, in your business and you find out he's been arrested and he's going to jail and you're like, okay, justice is served. Or, or the bully f- runs into a bigger and badder guy and gets pounded and you're like, okay, good, I'm glad. I'm glad there's a little dog eat dog in this world, but let's, let's be honest, there's many, many times when we don't get to see that. Many, many times when it seems like the bad guys are winning or the people who are breaking the rules are actually getting ahead. And sometimes we as Christians can sit back and say, okay, I'm trying to follow Jesus, but I don't see that it's paying off. Whereas this guy over here is doing whatever his flesh tells him to do. And I think he's having more fun. And what I want you to see is there's a day of judgment coming. And even in the meantime, even in the meantime, the people who seem to be having the fun aren't enjoying their lives. It's, it's not freedom. It's not joy. It's not pleasure. It it's only lasts for a moment and, it's, and it spends a lifetime of misery. Don't envy them. Pray for them, love them, seek to live out the Christian life in front of them so they can see the gospel in real life, but don't envy them. When I turned 16, on the day I turned 16, I went and got my driver's license. Passed my test, first try, yes. My dad had an old farm truck. I said, hey, can I drive that? He said, absolutely. I had some money that I'd saved up from a few summer jobs. I bought uh, and had installed a new cassette deck. Yeah, look it up, kids. Uh, it had a cassette deck and new speakers in it. And, I, and I, I, I got it painted midnight metallic blue, which within six months faded to purple. But even so, I had a new car, so to speak, and I'd start driving myself to school. No more bus four for me. So one day... School's out, it's a nice hot summer day. I get in my car, my truck, and, and I, I put in uh, some kind of 80s metal and, and, and I'm driving down the road, windows down, just feeling free as a bird, thinking about girls or football, the only two subjects I knew anything about back then, or actually cared about, didn't know anything, but you know, cared about. And, and so I'm, I'm thinking about other things. I don't even see the flashing lights. All I see is, all I see is the, the torso of Mr. Mosley hanging out of the bus and his long finger pointing right at me. And I hit the brakes and skidded to a stop just in time. And he saw me and I saw him and I knew that he knew who I was. And I thought, I am dead. But you know what? He never mentioned it to me, never once, ever after that, even when I was in his class as a senior. I just tell you that story to say this. Jesus has given us a path to follow. And that path leads, leads to life and freedom, and joy. And there are some of you here this morning who you're already thinking of steps you could take to experience that freedom, that life, that joy in some area of your life. And I want to urge you to write that down or to tell someone, here's what I'm going to do. Make it official. Don't just keep it to yourself. Don't walk out of here and start thinking about other things. I want you to take real steps mortify the sin in your life. Take real steps to become a new person because that's what Christ has given us the power to do. Why not today? What are you waiting for? A whole lot of people all around you will sure be glad, but I want to give you some really good news. See, someday you're going to stand before a judge who's far more righteous than even Mr. Mosley, who hates sin even more than Mr. Mosley hated people who passed the school bus. And the good news is, if you believe in the, in, the, in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, if you've given your heart to him, he's become your savior. 
then your judge is your savior. The man on the throne is the one who died for you. The one who will judge you most finally is the same one who loves you most fully. And that is very, very good news. And that is what we celebrate as God's people. So the man who did that for you, wouldn't you love to live for him?